Star Walker Studios presents Game Master's Journey, your multidimensional RPG podcast. Hello, listener. Greetings, fellow GM and or player. Welcome to episode 97 of Game Master's Journey, your multidimensional RPG podcast. I'm your host, Lex Starwalker, and I'm transmitting to you today from the Obsidian Monolith somewhere outside time and space. I've got a great episode for you today. I'm going to be discussing something near and dear to my heart from way back in the day. And I'm talking about the Ravenloft campaign setting for D&D. I am returning to Ravenloft as the title of the episode says, and I'm really excited to do so. And I'm really excited to talk about Ravenloft today. But before I get into that, a couple other things real quick. First of all, if you're a patron of Starwalker Studios, head on over to the Patreon feed and give me some feedback on a post I made there asking about the game material for March. So as I mentioned, I think last episode, one of the new perks that I've come up with for patrons is I'm going to start uploading some of the game content that I come up with for the patrons. So right now, that's mainly D&D 5th edition content, mainly for my homebrew world of Primordia. So I made a post in the patron feed of some of the things I've been working on, and I'd like to hear from you which of those you'd like to see first. And also, if there's any ideas you have of content you'd like to see from me in the future, whether it's for my homebrew world of Primordia or just for 5th edition in general, let me know. And you can find the patron feed on my Patreon page at patreon.com slash starwalkerstudios. All right, so one other thing before I start talking about Ravenloft today, I want to talk a little bit about diversity in gaming. In fact, I want to talk a lot about diversity in gaming. You know, this is a really important thing, and it's something that I would really like to do an episode, or better yet, a series of episodes of the show on. Namely, you know, for all the GMs out there, you know, how can we make our gaming table welcoming to all players, no matter, you know, their nationality, their gender, their sexual orientation, whatever. Of course, it's easy to game with people who are like you. It's, it's easy to know how to handle yourself and, and how to welcome people that are similar to yourself to the table. But when people are different than you in some way or another, whether that's gender or sexual orientation or culture or whatever, sometimes you don't know how to act. And me personally, I really want to welcome everyone at my table. And even more importantly, once they get there, I want them to feel comfortable and like they're part of what's going on. Like everybody has equal voice and gets equal attention, right? And nobody's singled out for some real world reason, like what gender they are or how tall they are or 
how much they weigh or, or anything because none of that matters when you're playing an RPG, which is one of the beauties of this hobby is that it can bring so many different types of people together. And especially now with the popularity of playing online, that's even more true than, than it ever was. Now, obviously, as a, you know, American white male, I don't know if there's a whole lot I can say about it. I'm definitely not the best person to talk about it. So I would love to have some guests on the show who can give us all some tips on how we can make our gaming environment welcome to all types of players and once we have players at our table, how we can continue to make that environment welcoming so they keep coming back. So if you are a non-male and or non-white and or non-heterosexual person and you would like to discuss this with me, shoot me an email, gamemastersjourney at gmail.com. I'd love to have some people on the show to talk about this and you know, how many episodes I do on this will largely depend on how many people volunteer to come talk on this. And you don't have to be an expert. I just want your point of view, you know, and it can be as simple as as a woman, you know, these are major turnoffs at a gaming table or these are things I want to see, stuff like that. Or here are some horror stories of bad things that have happened to me and you know please don't let this kind of thing happen at your table you know it can just totally be your own personal experience you don't need to come with a bunch of numbers or research or anything like that i just want to hear from people who are not <laughs> white males who aren't the the majority what makes you feel comfortable at the table what makes you feel uncomfortable what makes you more or less likely to respond to someone's post on, say, something like Roll20, looking for players for their game? Or what are things that you're looking for when you join a new group to know that this is a place where you can fit in and be comfortable and have a good time? Because the thing about playing a role-playing game is, you know, you kind of have to bear yourself a little bit. You know, and, and the more you role play, the more seriously you role play and get in character, the more of that you do. And, you know, for some people that's easier than for others. But, you know, for some of us, that's a very difficult and challenging thing to do. And in order to be able to do that, you need to be in an environment where you feel safe and comfortable and you need to be with people that you feel respect you and understand you and can relate with you right so it's pretty important to our hobby to be able to establish that kind of an atmosphere so i think this is a really important topic and it's something i'd, I'd really like to highlight and talk about more in season six which is coming up here in april so if you're interested shoot me an email gamemastersjourney at gmail.com if you've got something to say, this is your chance to say it and have it be heard. So I hope I hear from you. All right, so main topic today, I'm returning to Ravenloft. So as you probably have guessed or already know, if you've listened to previous episodes of the show, I am planning to run Wizards of the Coast's new adventure for D&D 5th Edition, Curse of Strahd. So 
If you don't know anything about Curse of Strahd, Curse of Strahd is basically a rewriting of the original Ravenloft adventure that was created by Tracy and Laura Hickman way back when. This is what started Ravenloft. This was before Ravenloft was even a campaign setting. This is what started it all. And so Wizards is redoing it basically and and they've taken the adventure they've converted it to fifth edition they've added some more stuff and i'm going to be running it with my my thursday night group so we're, we're taking a break from primordia we're going to do curse of strahd and i'm really looking forward to it and i'm really looking forward to getting back to ravenloft some of my first gaming experiences in the rpg hobby were actually in ravenloft so D&D was the first RPG I played and I started out, you know, I played a, they weren't necessarily seen as one shots, but I basically played in some one shots. Uh, just, you know, you get together, you play once or twice and then you just never, it just never happens again. Not that it was really a planned one shot, but played a, you know, a few random things here and there in D&D kind of a combination of uh, first edition and second edition. But the first real campaign I played in where I played the same character every time and, and played multiple sessions was a Ravenloft campaign in second edition. And my dungeon master at the time had the Ravenloft box set. Uh, I played a dark elf who was a female dark elf. She was a fighter psionicist. So already you can tell that I had a, uh, a DM that, that was cool with people going uh, outside the box a bit because, you know, back in second edition, you know, playing Dark Elves wasn't something that players got to do a lot. And, uh, you know, Psionics has always been kind of the, the weird outlier in D&D. It's not really part of the core D&D experience, but it's this thing out on the fringe that some people love, some people hate, and probably a lot of people are just indifferent to. But I had a lot of fun with that character and uh, got sucked into Ravenloft. I don't remember which realm we were in or if I ever even knew which realm we were in. But uh, I do remember that we were going after a vampire. I don't think it was Strahd. I think it was a different vampire. And yeah, having lots of fun <laughs> in Ravenloft. So because of that, I, I have a kind of a special place in my heart for Ravenloft because it's where I had my first real experience with D&D as a player. And I still remember those adventures. And even as a fairly new player to D&D, I was versed enough in D&D at that point to understand that Ravenloft was not your average everyday D&D experience. You know, D&D is usually mythic fantasy or high fantasy, some flavor of fantasy, right? Depending how you run it or which campaign world you're using. But Ravenloft is, is gothic horror. And my DM that I was playing under at the time really got into the horror aspect of it. And, and it was really cool. In fact, one of my coolest RPG memories of, of all time comes from that Ravenloft campaign. One night we decided we were going to, to play Ravenloft. I, I think we were all involved with a play that the high school was doing at the time. 
and play rehearsal was over and we decided we were going to play Ravenloft and I don't remember if it was because we didn't have anywhere to go or we just thought it would be a cool idea but we went to the river that went through the small little town where I went to high school and there was a little sandy beach by the river and we played Ravenloft there and in my memory I remember it being a full moon seems a little too perfect maybe you know Maybe my memory has altered through the years. Maybe it wasn't a full moon, but I remember it being a full moon with, you know, the striated clouds drifting across the moon at night down by the river in darkness other than the lantern or whatever we brought with us playing Ravenloft. And and it was super cool. It was great for the mood actually playing in the dark outside you know, hearing the crickets and the tree frogs and the sound of the running water. And that was early 90s, I think, 1993-ish, probably. And here I am decades later, and I still remember that. It's still one of my best RPG memories. It, it was just so cool. It, it was just so awesome. One of my other favorite memories is playing... Vampire the Masquerade out in the woods around a bonfire. That was fun too. I've never role played outside. Get outside, role play. It's a lot of fun. So Ravenloft, as I said, is gothic horror, which is this kind of fun twist on D&D. It's not your average everyday D&D experience. And, you know, back in those days, that's kind of how we approached Ravenloft was that it was something to do for a change of pace. Because back then, you know, we had... We had Dragonlance. We had Forgotten Realms. Um, I think Dark Sun was getting going about then, you know. And, and Dark Sun's a little different, but you know, it was all kind of D and D. And Ravenloft was something that you could do that was a little different. It was still D and D, but it was it was a little different. And it was cool. I dug it. I still do. One thing I really like about Ravenloft is the kind of low magic aspect of the setting and the way that the setting limits the types of monsters that you encounter you know it, it's a lot more humanoids or humans i should say not humanoids humans it's a lot more humans and undead and depending which realm of ravenloft you're in maybe you like anthrops but you're seeing a lot less of you know you don't see things like dragons and giants so much you know the the kind of high fantasy stuff it's more of a kind of mundane fantasy with with humans and and you don't so much have the the fantasy races but you've got undead and, and you've got you know these twisted versions of humans and i imagine aberrations you probably see some aberrations at least in in some of them pulling in uh some of that cthulhu mythos right so that's a pretty cool change of pace, too. You know, it's not just goblins and kobolds all the time. You get to do something different. Another thing I really like about Ravenloft, and, and I should say, as I'm talking about Ravenloft, I'm pretty much talking about it as it was in 2nd Edition. I've never actually, I don't think, yeah, I've never actually run anything in Ravenloft myself. Pretty much that experience I just told you about playing that campaign with my Dark Elf character 
was pretty much my one experience with Ravenloft up up to this point. And we played that campaign for quite a bit, but that was kind of it. So when I was playing third edition in 3.5, I just never never got into Ravenloft. I was doing my own thing and, and my own uh, version of the Forgotten Realms. Never really got into Ravenloft. I didn't play fourth edition. So, uh, yeah. So this is all coming from second edition, primarily that, that original Ravenloft box set. So I really don't know and honestly don't care what changes they made to the setting in third edition and fourth edition. So, so just so you know where I'm coming from. So some of this may have been different in, in later editions, but one of the things I really liked about Ravenloft was the dark powers. And so the dark powers are these forces that are mysterious and unknown. Nobody really knows what they are. And they're what's responsible for Ravenloft existing. And Ravenloft is these series of closed domains that exist on the ethereal plane. They're surrounded by the mists, which are these ethereal mists that are able to appear in other worlds and pull people into these domains of Ravenloft. Usually what happens is someone is bad, evil, and not just evil, but but exhibits just an amazing level of selfishness and depravity and whatnot. And, and someone does enough to attract the notice of these dark powers, whatever they are. And if the dark powers find you, quote, worthy, then they scoop you up with the mist and create a new domain of Ravenloft around you. And it's kind of a two-edged sword because you are the lord of this domain. You have a lot of power within and over your domain. In fact, the land itself shapes to your personality. But at the same time, the domain is a prison to you. And this is one of the things that I really like about Ravenloft is is the dark powers and why on earth do they do what they do? There's this kind of paradox about it because on the one hand, it seems like they're punishing great evil, right? So, so you find some great evil being like Strahd von Zarovich or Lord Soth, and you take them out of their world and you put them in this prison. And looking at that, it's like, oh, well, they're doing, quote, good. The dark powers are doing good because they're taking these powerful evil beings from their world where they're creating all this havoc and they're putting them in this prison. But they're not in that prison all by themselves. This realm that forms around them is oftentimes populated by people. So it's like, well, you know, we take this evil person like Strahd and and we take him out of the the world that he's from and put him into this prison but there's these other people who are you know innocent or at least as innocent as anybody is that are trapped there with him so that doesn't seem good right in fact seems pretty evil right it's like hey let's take these normal everyday people and let's trap them with this uh powerful evil being and see what happens 
And that's something I really like about Ravenloft. I like that paradox. I like that mystery of what are the dark powers? Why do they do what they do? Are they really concerned about eliminating evil from the multiverse? And if so, then why are they trapping, quote, innocent people with these evil beings? Or maybe they don't care about good or evil, but then why are they selecting such evil people to be the lords of the domains of Ravenloft? Who knows? It's a cool mystery, though. I also like the way the dark powers tempt you within Ravenloft. And this is something I'm really curious when I get Curse of Straw to see if anything is done with this in 5th edition. I suspect that it won't be just, I don't know. It just seems 5th edition, it seems like Wizards kind of phones it in <laughs> when it comes to interesting mechanics. For example, the Outer Planes. You know, if you look at Planescape or even just the Outer Planes as they were presented in second edition or third edition ignoring Planescape because I understand Planescape is like a whole setting based on them so of course they're going to do more with them but even ignoring Planescape if you just look at the Outer Planes from second and third edition there's a lot more going on there mechanically than there is in fifth edition a lot more I mean now it's like playing a fire I ah, just walk around on a plane of fire no big deal it's like no it's the plane of fire it's made out of fire <laughs> So unless you're immune to fire, you probably don't want to go there. So, you know, I've seen this trend in fifth edition of just really watering things down when it comes to these interesting kind of more situational mechanics, right? So I find it hard to imagine that they're going to do much justice to the dark powers or things like powers checks, uh, not to mention the effects that Ravenloft has on various schools of magic in various specific spells. So I actually got out to a, to a bookstore this week and flipped through a copy of Curse of Strahd. I don't have my own personal copy yet, and uh, I didn't have time to, to read the thing, but I did see the, their section dealing with this stuff, and it was like a paragraph. <laughs> Where in the second edition of box set, it was like a chapter? <laughs> So, yeah, I'm probably going to be house ruling some stuff from second edition because, you know, watering down Ravenloft to a point just turns it into every other setting. And then at that point, why call it Ravenloft? So, yeah, I like the dark powers. I like the powers checks. So this may not be a thing. So if you have Curse of Strahd and that's your only exposure to Ravenloft, you may not even know what a powers check is if they didn't convert it. So basically, in 2nd edition, the way it worked was when you were in Ravenloft and you did something really evil, it would call for a powers check, which was basically a saving throw to see whether or not the thing that you did attracted the notice of the dark powers. And for the most part, attracting the notice of the dark powers was not a good thing. Although, in the beginning, it could seem like it was a good thing. Another thing that could force a powers check is using certain types of magic. For instance, using any kind of necromancy, including spells like Raise Dead, would force you to make a powers check. Because you're using necromancy, there's a chance the dark powers are going to notice that. And what happens if you failed that check, if you failed that saving throw, the dark powers would notice you 
and they would give you a boon of some kind, but it would come with some kind of flaw attached to it. And you would begin this journey (laughs) with the dark powers where every time after that, that you did something to attract their notice, every time that you failed another of these powers checks, they would continue to give you these boons and flaws, but each successive boon or flaw was of a greater degree than the one before. And the idea was that they all were thematically connected and ultimately would involve your character transforming into some kind of monster. Okay. And it would fit your nature and the nature of what you were doing. So let's say maybe you were a wizard in Ravenloft and you, you'd like the necromancy and you're casting those necromancy spells and you're making powers checks and you start failing them. Well, maybe that first boon might be something like you're now no longer susceptible to inhaled poison or drowning because you no longer have to breathe. Okay, and maybe the flaw is your ears become overly large and pointed and and have tufts of hair coming out of them or something like that. And the idea is as you got more of these boons and flaws, you know, maybe the powers are slowly turning you into a lich, basically. So as this evolves, as you go down this path, you get more and more powerful boons, like lich-like abilities, but you also get more and more noticeable flaws and it gets less and less possible for you to be around normal people without everyone screaming monster in either running for the hills or grabbing the nearest weapon and coming after you. And then finally, if you went far enough down this path, there came the point of no return where the dark powers have you now and they take you and they form a new domain of Ravenloft around your character and your character is now an NPC under the control of the DM. So that was kind of how the power check worked. And I really liked it. And I remember when I was playing back in second edition days, we had some people in our group that were making those power checks. And and we had one character who had failed one or two or three of them and was far enough along in the process where you were starting to see the bad side. Because in the beginning, it seems like it's pretty good, right? You get some kind of bonus that's pretty good. And there's some little drawback that's a lot of times just some kind of cosmetic thing, right? Like the pointed ears that, you know, with a a little creativity and ingenuity, you could disguise that and, and not really suffer any drawbacks from it. But as you go further down that path, the drawbacks get more and more pronounced. And, and this character had gotten to the point where there are some obvious drawbacks now. And the player was kind of like, I don't want to have to make any more powers checks. So it was, it was pretty cool. And I just recently did an episode where I talked about alignment in the game and why I'm not really a fan of alignment. And, you know, this is a better way to do alignment. I mean, basically, the point of alignment to me is to bring morality 
into the game and to have there be some kind of mechanical impact of morality for there to be some kind of consequence to making the choice to be an evil character. I think that the alignment system fails at that and is not a very fun way to try to do that. I think these power checks is a much more fun way to bring morality into the game if that's what you want to do, which is to say that there are these dark forces. Maybe they're evil, maybe they're not, who knows, but there are these forces watching over everything and every time you do something evil there's a chance that they notice you and the more depraved and evil the thing you do or the greater the impact that thing has the more likely they are to notice you the more powerful you are the more likely they are to notice you so the higher level you are the more likely they are to notice you and when they notice you they're going to do something about it. And and it may be a thing like like in Ravenloft where at the beginning it seems like they're they're giving you favors and this is a path you want to pursue for greater power. But eventually you come to realize that there's a price. And just as the rewards get greater, the prices get greater too. And ultimately there's consequence to your actions, right? So you're raising undead, there's consequence. You're killing people willy-nilly there's a consequence the dark powers notice you good things happen bad things happen then worse things happen then ultimately if you keep it up you become an npc and now you're the nemesis that the other player characters are trying to fight against so i think that's a lot more evocative and interesting way to bring morality into the game and that's a way that can lead you to awesome stories. I mean, the the story basically tells itself when you have that kind of thing in place. And I think that kind of thing can be really fun if that's the kind of story that you and your group want to tell. So using the Ravenloft setting, you know, you could tell a story where one or, or more than one of the PCs maybe starts out, you know, good or neutral or whatever alignment but maybe they're they're dabbling in necromancy or maybe they're just being murder hobos and they start attracting the notice of the dark powers. They start getting these gifts, also getting these flaws, and it forces the player and the character to make a decision, right? Whether that's consciously or not, but it forces them to make a decision of either I'm going to continue on this path I'm on, I'm going to continue doing what I'm doing knowing that the end result is likely going to be you know me being consumed by these dark powers and putting into my own prison or i decide hey i can't do this anymore right i can't use these necromancy spells anymore because the price is too high and either way the character goes that's an interesting story if the character is like no, I, I want to do necromancy and I don't care where it takes me and they ultimately fall to darkness. That's an interesting story. Or if the character decides I got to give up necromancy at least until I escape from Ravenloft. And, and maybe, you know, you have a character who's a necromancer wizard, like that's their specialty school. And now the character makes a decision not to use necromancy spells anymore. That's an interesting story. And what happens then is, is that character going to 
try to specialize in another school. It's the GM and the player going to work out a way for that necromancer wizard to become an evoker wizard instead? Or is he always going to be a necromancer wizard who just doesn't use necromancy? And maybe now that character is really motivated to escape from Ravenloft, not just so that he can go see his friends again and and see familiar sights, but so that he can use necromancy again and not have to worry about the dark powers coming after him. Although, if you're vile and evil and powerful enough, nowhere is safe from the dark powers because they will pull people from other worlds too. And wouldn't that be a cool story, right? Imagine this story where you're the GM, you've got this this group of player characters and they get pulled into Ravenloft. Maybe maybe you do Curse of Strahd, right? Or, or some other adventure in Ravenloft. One of the PCs is a wizard, this necromancer. And, you know, maybe while he's in Ravenloft, he decides not to use necromancy. Maybe he doesn't care, whatever. But ultimately, the player characters escape from Ravenloft. They return to their home world, let's say Primordia. And the necromancer is like, hey, yay, I'm out of Ravenloft. I, I can use my necromancy spells again. And proceeds to become this powerful necromancer. Maybe he becomes a lich, because why wouldn't you if you're a necromancer? And does some really crazy evil things. And maybe the, the characters get up to... 15 to 20th level somewhere in there and this player just goes off the deep end and the the character just goes total evil right and the end of the the campaign you know that that final scene the mists start rolling in and then the mists roll out and the necromancer is gone and everybody else is like where'd he go and the necromancer appears in his own realm his own brand new domain of ravenloft forever to remain that'd be kind of a cool way to to end that campaign that started with them going to ravenloft and then maybe the next campaign is another ravenloft campaign but now they're in this domain where the previous player character this necromancer character is the lord of the domain and the player characters get pulled into this domain and now they have to deal with this npc that used to be a pc I think that would be pretty cool. I think that'd be fun. I'd be down for that. So yeah, I'm a I'm a big fan of Ravenloft. I'm really excited to return to it and and to run Curse of Strahd. And I'm really excited to finally get something in fifth edition that isn't Forgotten Realms. And I know I'm not the only one. I, I've heard again, I, I haven't been able to read the entire book yet, but I've heard that they're doing something where Barovia Strahd's domain is pulled into the realms for a while, which I think is really stupid. And I mean, it's like, isn't the Forgotten Realms already a mess of a hodgepodge enough without now pulling Ravenloft into it too? But uh, yeah, just I'm axing that for my campaign, that's for sure. That's the beauty of Ravenloft being on the ethereal plane. People can get pulled in from anywhere. It doesn't have to be in the realms. But the good thing about that is you're going to be able to submit Ravenloft material or at least Barovia material, maybe to the dungeon masters guild. So there's that, you know, hopefully eventually they're going to open up dungeon masters guild to uh, more than just forgotten realms or things that are tacked on the forgotten realms like, like Barovia is now, but at least for now, that's a way you can do it. 
so there's that but yeah i'm look i'm really looking forward to running it i'm going to be running it every thursday so we play thursdays from 3 30 to 7 30 pacific time on youtube so you can head on over to my youtube channel or just click the link from the show notes at starwalkerstudios.com and you can see us play live on thursdays when we're playing or you can just watch the videos whenever i'm really looking forward to doing it and we are going to be starting out with the intro adventure to the campaign which is called death house and you can actually get death house which is a a short little adventure takes characters from level one to level three for free from wizards website i will have a link in the show notes to that you can also get the very limited character options that are in curse of strahd for free as well and i'll have that linked as well Um, basically there's a new background called the haunted one and there's a new list of trinkets that have kind of more of a gothic flavor to them and that's it for uh player character options so if you're thinking about getting curse of strahd just to have more options for player characters yeah don't bother that's all there is and you can get it for free on the website also i will have linked in the show notes a blog post i wrote about death house and this is just for gms who are thinking of running death house if you're a player and you think you're going to be playing death house or maybe playing death house you don't want to read it because it's full of spoilers but the adventure death house as it's written is not properly balanced (laughs) for the level of player characters that it's written for Uh, chances are really good if you just run that adventure out of the box you're going to have dead pcs on your hand i'd say chances are really good you're going to have a total party kill on your hand So I went ahead and went through the adventure. I pulled out the problem encounters and I redid them so that they're more appropriately balanced in case, you know, you want to actually use Death House to begin your Ravenloft campaign or some other campaign and you don't want all or most of the player characters to die before they reach third level. So if that's you, uh, check out my blog post. I'll have it linked in the show notes. So one thing that's interesting, going by what I see in the Death House adventure, because it it does reference Curse of Strahd, because this is in Curse of Strahd, but again, you can get the PDF of just Death House for free separately. It references the rest of the book. And from what it says, it looks like Curse of Strahd is using Milestone XP. So that's really interesting. Now, I did not run or read Princes of the Apocalypse or Out of the Abyss. So I don't know if those use Milestone XP or Encounter Base XP or not. But I know that Rise of Tiamat used Milestone XP. And Lost Minds of Fandelver kind of was half and half. Like the first half of it or the first part of it used Milestone and then they kind of went to Encounter. But I think it's interesting, a a little interesting addendum (laughs) to our XP discussion that we've had about, you know, is it better to use Milestone XP or is it better to hand wave it or is it better to do Encounter-based XP? And, you know, I started out in the minority, it seems like, of people that want to use Encounter-based XP. It seems like most people 
are just hand waving or using milestone if only because the xp system is kind of fucked up <laughs> but i've now converted to the milestone method myself and i think it's interesting you know we finally have one of these big adventures actually produced by wizards and and not a third party and their adventure that they produce they're using milestone xp so they're not even using their broken encounter based xp system which i think is interesting also uh wizards has teased a bit of count strahd's uh stats for fifth edition uh this is really bizarre i i don't get wizards sometimes they they teased it on their tumblr account and their facebook seriously wizards <laughs> if there's a less prof professional way to try to tease something than facebook and tumblr i'm not sure what it is <laughs> you, you remember you have a website right wizards that you can put stuff on now granted your website is really terrible and it's impossible to find things on it so maybe that's why you don't put stuff on there also the uh the death house uh is on the website but at least I, I think there's a way to find it now but when it first came out they released it on uh their shitty dragon plus app that's <laughs> uh, nothing like dragon magazine oh i miss dragon magazine and dungeon magazine but uh they released it on the dragon plus app which took you to the website to to get the pdf for death house but there's nowhere on the website to find death house they've they've since remedied that but yeah i don't know what's going on with their website but they really need someone that knows what they're doing <laughs> to help them with their website so yeah strahd's on there kind of interesting he's cr15 so if you don't know this this adventure officially starts at level three you you do have death house in uh, the appendix that takes characters from level one to level three if you want to start at level one but the adventure proper goes from level three to level 10 and presumably you face strahd at the end and he's cr15 so even if there's some kind of plot devices or elements that are going to help the pcs defeat strahd and and give them some kind of advantage against him having a monster that is five crs higher than the party level even if they have some huge advantage seems problematic at least going by the way they describe their system and how the cr system is supposed to work that seems broken to me seems like uh that's not gonna work we'll see when my when my group gets there i actually know <laughs> what the leg up that they get is assuming it's the same as the original adventure but i don't want to spoil it on the show but if it's the same leg up that was in the original adventure i don't see it making up for that 5cr difference so yeah that'll be interesting so yeah i don't know it's just weird it, it's like wizards came up with this system for you know cr and xp budgets for coming up with encounters and xp for encounters and leveling and they came up with this system and then a they don't use it themselves they don't use encounter based xp in their adventures that they create mike merles has said that he doesn't give out encounter based xp he just levels people every other session or whatever so they don't use the systems themselves that they, they came up with and 
they don't seem to understand them <laughs> or know how to use them properly because the encounters that they come up with aren't properly balanced by the guidelines that they set in the DMG for how to properly balance an encounter. So it just, it makes me wonder, are those guidelines just wrong? The guidelines in the DMG on how to balance an encounter, are they just wrong? And Wizards knows it, and so they don't use them when they make their adventures? Or do the people designing the adventures just not understand how to do it right? Or what? I don't know. It's confusing. But yeah, I, I noticed that in uh, Tyranny of Dragons, a lot of the encounters were not properly balanced. You know, they were either way, way too hard or way, way too easy. And um, a lot of them, especially in like the last half of Horde of the Dragon Queen, like I just had to completely redo them because they were way off. I mean, way off, not even close. And, you know, that I just kind of assumed it was a thing of Cobalt Press was developing this adventure at the same time that Wizards was developing 5th edition. And, you know, obviously there's going to be some problems, you know, when Cobalt Press doesn't have the finalized version of the rules on day one of designing their adventure. But, you know, here we are quite a bit later now, you know, system's been out for a long time and, and we're still seeing these, these issues. So I don't know. Do you have an opinion, a theory? Let me know, GameMasterJourney at gmail.com. What, what's going on with Wizards and their encounter and adventure design and not following their own rules? Yeah, I'm really curious to see how, how this goes with people, especially the encounter with Strahd. I'm, I'm really curious to see, or encounters with Strahd. I'm really curious to see how those end up playing out at everyone's tables. Uh, something else you should know if you're going to Wizards website to get that Haunted One background, it's already been corrected. <laughs> I'm not sure if the one on the website is the new corrected version. I would hope so. But I do know I looked at it in the book and the one that went to print in the book is not the eroded version. It's the incorrect version. So this background gives you one skill and one language as written and Wizards has since changed it to two skills and one language. I myself am house ruling it to two skills and two languages so that it lines up with, with other skills or other backgrounds in the game. Um, but it's like, really? You guys just put this out and like a week later, there's already problems and you're already having to fix it. I don't know. What was it that hard for someone to notice that it doesn't have the same number of skills and languages as every other background in the game? I don't know. So one thing I'm curious about for any of you that that played much fourth edition or even just read the Ravenloft material for fourth edition, uh, I'm assuming this happened in fourth edition. Maybe it happened in third because I didn't read the third edition Ravenloft material. At what point did Ravenloft move from the ethereal plane to the shadow plane or the shadow fell as we call it now? Um, and why <laughs> did that happen in third edition or fourth edition? And what's, what was the justification for that or the reasoning for that? Because I just don't understand why they would change that because I thought the ethereal plane worked perfectly with the mists and how the mists work and yeah, I, I mean, the ethereal plane seems like the perfect home for Ravenloft, not to mention things like ghosts have access to the ethereal plane. 
So why did they move it to the Shadowfell? Was that just one on the laundry list of dozens of terrible decisions they made for fourth edition? Or is there actually a good reason for it? So let me know. GameMastersJourney at (laughs) gmail.com. And one other link I'm going to have for you in this episode's show notes is I will have a link to an episode of the D&D podcast put out by Wizards. Uh, They had Tracy Hickman on an episode and they talk about Curse of Strahd and the original Ravenloft adventure. And yeah, it's a it's a good conversation. So definitely check that out for uh, some context in history. Now, I'm not going to go into the actual adventure because, again, I don't want to spoil it for anyone who might be playing it, but I'm really excited to run it, and I'm really excited to try doing horror with D&D. I think that'll be fun. Kind of interested how this is going to play out with my group because if, if you've watched any of my Tyranny of Dragon stuff or Primordia stuff, um, you've probably seen that we like to goof around a lot. We like to laugh. We like to have a good time. And I don't know <laughs> what's going to happen, you know, with us trying to do horror. Are we are actually going to be able to do it and have it be dark and, and, and have kind of a more serious atmosphere or, or not. We've, we've had some discussion about it on our forums and, and it sounds like people want to try to get that horror flavor and tone and and want to try to make it more serious but will that survive contact with the actual game and and playing it i don't know personally i don't really care to be honest it's kind of funny because years ago if i was going to run this you know 10 years ago 20 years ago I would have been all about the horror and catching the vibe and I wouldn't have wanted people goofing around at the table and making jokes and ruining this mood I'm trying to set. And I would have been all about that. But these days I'm I'm just a little more laid back as a GM, I guess. I, I kind of tend to follow the player's lead when it comes to that. You know, every group kind of organically finds its own sweet spot as far as you know how serious are we going to be how goofy are we going to be you know things like that and as long as all the players are on the same page and everybody's having fun i don't really care you know if we do ravenloft and it's super somber and dark and disturbing and scary and all that like that that'd be awesome if if we can pull that off if i can pull that off as, as a gm that that would be super cool. I'd, I'd be down for that. But if it turns into just a beer and pretzels, goofing off, having fun, that's fine too. I, I think the only thing that would really bother me is if I'd, I had a particular scene I was trying to set and I was trying to go for something more impactful. Like maybe, you know, the first time the PCs meet Strahd, you know, and I really want to impress upon them that, you know, he's a badass and you don't want to fuck with them and you know he's like the puppet master of this domain and you know if something happened to kind of undermine that and just turn it into a joke i don't know that might that might bother me a little bit but i don't know i'm kind of i i kind of have a wait and see <laughs> approach to it i guess you know we'll just wait to see what what happens for me personally running it i'm i'm going to try to be more serious i'm going to try to really convey the dread 
and horror of the setting the best I can. But at the end of the day, that's really all I can do. I, I can't control how the players react to that and I don't want to. So it'll, it'll just be up to the group and kind of what happens organically. So I would love to hear from you if you're planning on running or playing in Curse of Strahd. You know, what, what direction are you guys taking at your table? Are you trying to be more serious and, and really get into the horror and really kind of freak people out? Or are you just having fun with it somewhere in the middle? Let me know. So I guess one last thing I could talk about today in regards to Ravenloft and Curse of Strahd is kind of my outlook or my strategy going into this because I've talked about on the show before I've, I've tried to run these these long adventure paths and you know more often than not you end up not finishing them for various reasons and you end up just losing interest the GM loses interest the players lose interest and I don't want that to happen with this campaign so I've given it a lot of thought you know even when I was deciding whether or not to run it, you know, because I, I knew I was going to get a copy of the book from Wizards, you know, and that, that I was going to review it, you know, at the very least. But I thought, you know, is this something I want to run? Because I, I love Ravenloft. I've never run a game in Ravenloft before. It'd, it'd be a fun thing to try. And this is, you know, one of the most highly thought of adventures in D&D's history, the original Ravenloft adventure. So it'd, it'd be a fun thing to run. I kind of wish they would have, I don't know. I, I don't know. It's a whole, it's a whole can of worms, this whole, like just recycling an adventure, you know, and, and I'm really curious to read it to see if, you know, cause the original Ravenloft adventure went from like level five to, I don't remember, but it wasn't like a 10 level campaign or even a seven level campaign like this, this is. So obviously they've expanded on it did they expand with like cool stuff that you're going to be like excited to do or did they just add more filler crap to it to stretch it out? You know what I mean? I, I've already read one review online that mentioned something about how a lot of the expanded part of the adventure is kind of exploring the domain and how, you know, some some groups might not really be into that and they, they just want to go you know, face Strahd and, and go to Castle Ravenloft. So I don't know. I, I haven't seen it myself yet. I'm, I'm really curious about that. But, you know, my thoughts going into this as a GM is I want to tell the story and I'm going to keep in mind that the core of this story came from a, like a 30 page or less little pamphlet adventure like they used to make way back then. You know, so, so yeah, we're getting this $50 book, but the core of that story is just a handful of those pages, right? And, and there's going to be a lot of more stuff in it. Who knows what? Who knows how good a quality that extra stuff is going to be? But what's important to me, and this is a very different outlook than I've had in the past going into an adventure path like this and, and again this only goes from level 3 to level 10 or level 1 to level 10 it doesn't go all the way to level 15 like the other ones did but something that, that I'm just thinking different just a different way of thinking is I'm not worried about doing every stupid little encounter I want to finish 
the adventure. That's my, that's my goal. You know, in the past, you know, when I ran Tyranny of Dragons is like, you know, I'm, I'm doing this thing. I'm doing the whole thing, like every little bit and piece, like in Tyranny of Dragon, there's a chapter where the player characters are guarding a caravan. I know lame, right? They're guarding a caravan and they take this journey and this is widely regarded as the weakest point of the entire campaign, this chapter. You can find all kinds of people on the internet complaining about it and saying how horrible it is. And I did it. You know, when I first read it, I was like, wow, this looks really boring. I'm bored just reading about this. Maybe I should just skip this. <laughs> but then I was like, well, what am I gonna do? I'm just gonna give everybody a level for nothing and, and just, you know, hand wave this whole section of the adventure path and there were some very minimal kind of character development moments with NPCs that honestly by the end of the adventure didn't matter at all you know looking back <laughs> I'm like I should have just cut that out that was a terrible adventure writing it was a terrible part of the adventure I should have just cut it out had a travel montage give them the level if they need that whatever you know do what's best for the story right but but i was too wrapped up in no i want to give my players the full tyranny of dragons experience you know and kind of i guess putting more faith in the adventure writers than the adventure deserved <laughs> thinking oh there's some master plan to why we're doing this horribly boring thing so i learned from that experience because we have not finished that campaign we might go back to it we might finish it but we ended up, you know, stopping just at the beginning of the, the second book, the second half of the campaign, because we were all kind of bored with it. And looking back, you know, that caravan was really the begin of the downward spiral. That's when I think we all started really losing steam on the campaign. And so what I've learned from that is I would much rather with Curse of Strahd, if I look at Curse of Strahd, and I see a bunch of lame, boring chump encounters that are just there to fill time and aren't doing anything interesting or dangerous. I'm not going to do them. I'm, I'm going to be more concerned with getting to the end of the story while everyone's still interested in the story than I am with doing every little thing. And in fact, I'm going to be very critical as I'm preparing for this adventure, looking for any weak spots, any encounters that seem boring or any aspects, you know, and if I look at this thing and I'm like, oh, you know, for four levels, they just explore Barovia and there's really, you know, there's these two or three things that matter out of that and the rest of it's just a bunch of bullshit just to get them up to level seven so they can go to Castle Ravenloft and I'm just making stuff up. I haven't read the thing yet. Um, it'll be funny if that's what actually happens. Uh, but if that's the case, if it's something like that, then I'm going to be like, fuck it. We're going to do those two or three things that matter. And I'll just give them a bunch of XP or levels or whatever. And we're going to, we're going to skip to the good part. I'm, I'm not going to put my players through this boring crap. You know, we're going to skip to the good part. So hopefully it's a better written adventure than that. And hopefully, you know, I don't have to cut anything major out or the other possibility is if I see an encounter and I'm like ah oh, this is lame maybe instead of just cutting it out maybe there's something I can do with that encounter so maybe I can make it a little more challenging or make it less challenging if it's way you know overpowered or 
do something different with it. Do something, you know, so that this encounter that's just some combat encounter actually has something to do with the story. So, you know, I'll see when I get can really get digging into the adventure, how much of that I have to do. And, you know, if it's something that I, I have to make a lot of changes to, I, I might talk about that on the show or at the very least do some blog posts about it because that would probably be useful to any other GMs that are running this to kind of see, you know, what I'm doing with it, maybe to get some ideas or, or whatever. So yeah, that's kind of my, my outlook. I'm, I'm more concerned with hitting the major story beats and getting through the story while everyone has a high interest level. Um, I'm going to be on the lookout for anything that looks boring or grindy you know, if it's just a grind just to get through encounters so that we can justify your characters being fifth level now, um, I'm going to find a better way to do that. And it's milestone XP anyway, so you're already kind of hand-waving stuff anyway. It's not like you're giving XP out for every little encounter. So, you know, I don't think it's going to be a big deal. And hopefully players won't complain too much if, if they're leveling a little faster than they're used to. But my, my particular running of this is going to be interesting because we're doing death house. Cause I think death house is cool. I think it's going to be fun. Uh, but for various reasons, me and the players have decided to start the characters at level three, but because it's milestone XP, I don't want them to out level <laughs> the adventure so they're basically just going to be level three throughout the death house adventure. And they're just going to be level three until the curse of Strahd tells me that they should be level four. It's just, you know, that period of time, instead of starting at level one and then getting to level two and then getting to level three, they're just going to be level three the whole time. And I'm okay with that because w- without spoiling anything, I, I don't think that really the point of the death house adventure is to be, you know, kick in doors, fight monsters, take their stuff. There's more going on with that, more kind of psychological stuff and setting the tone for this campaign. And I think I can achieve that with the player characters being third level just as easily, probably more easily or better than if they're first or second level. And there's also the problem that the adventure isn't balanced correctly to where the player characters actually have a decent chance of survival. Cause I don't want to like kill off player characters and then they have to make new characters. You know what I mean? I, I mean, if that happens, so be it, but you know, I don't want the, the deck stacked for that to happen from the beginning, which is how it is with death house as written. But I think with them being third level might kind of sidestep that because something that is deadly to a first or second level party will be not so deadly to a third level party, at least theoretically, we'll see. And it's also kind of an experiment for me to see, you know, what impact does this have with them being third level instead of first level? How, how does this work out? Because personally, me as a GM, I'm not a fan of level one and two in uh, fifth edition. I think for me from here on out running fifth edition, it will be rare that I will start parties at level one. If there's a player who has never played D&D before, then I might start them at level one. Otherwise, I'd I'd say the lowest I would want to start a party is level two. I do kind of like starting at level two so they don't have third level spells like right away. So you can kind of still have that apprentice level feel. 
but to have two levels of that even if you know it's only two sessions yeah i'm just not interested and level one is really rough as far as combat to throw things at them that are interesting and dangerous and fun but that isn't just gonna wipe the party and and it's so swingy at, at level one like you sometimes you just don't know and uh level two they just have a little bit more buffer of hit points and there's not really a huge difference in power level between level one and two so i think you could even take an adventure that's written for level one characters and do it with level two characters and it's not really going to matter um except that they'll live through it more likely than not so but we'll see we'll see how it turns out um (laughs) it seems like every adventure or campaign i've run in fifth edition so far is an experiment of some kind i'm doing something different kind of experimenting with the system another thing i'm doing that's an experiment that i'm trying with this campaign is in character creation i have decided that i am not allowing the human variant rule and the human variant rule is where instead of humans getting a plus one to all their attributes they instead uh, get a feat and like plus one to two attributes or something like that so i'm not allowing that and the reason is is i see a lot of people playing humans more than i've ever seen before and you know i suspect that part of it is just the munchkin thing of oh i can start with a feat you know yeah <laughs> So I'm testing that theory by saying no human variant, but every character starts first level with the feet. So kind of like third edition, everybody gets a free feet at first level. And the reason I'm doing that is, is, like I said, partly just because I think that a lot of people just play humans in fifth edition just for the munchkin, like, you know, optimize your character. I, I want to have this feet, you know, that I wouldn't get otherwise. But on, on the flip side, I think having a feat at first level is a cool way to personalize your character a little bit more you know because the feats in fifth edition are are so cool that you can very much change the feel of a character by taking a feat you know for instance now i don't have my book in front of me to remember the names of the feats but but like if your character is a fighter and maybe you take you know the feat where you get a cantrip you know, a fighter with a cantrip is a very different character than just a regular fighter that doesn't have any kind of magic. So I think that's cool. And I think it's a cool way to allow players to have maybe a more specific character concept or to do something a little different so that, you know, your barbarian isn't the, you know, stereotypical barbarian. You can use a feat to, to put a different spin on it. I think that the feats are... I mean, they're powerful, you know, so so if you have a munchkin player that's going to take the most optimized feat for their character at first level, yeah, that's going to give that character an edge in combat or whatever. But I don't think that it's such a large edge that it's going to break the game. And I don't think it's going to create too much of a disconnect between the player that takes a feat to optimize and and power game versus the player that takes a feat just because they think it's something cool you know obviously the power gaming character is going to be a little more powerful a little more optimized 
but I don't think it's going to be such a difference between those two characters that it's going to break the game or the player that took a feat because it was cool is going to feel like they were cheated or like their character isn't good enough or can't keep up or anything like that. So we'll see. I'm, I'm testing, right? And, and I'm sure part of this will depend on the feats the players take and it will be interesting to see what feats they take. Are they taking feats to try to you know, power game and make their character as powerful as, as possible? Or are they taking more flavor kind of things? Or are they maybe using a feat to, to kind of give their character kind of a multi-class kind of feel without multi-classing? Um, for instance, you know, the fighter taking a feat to have cantrips, things like that. So it'll be interesting to see what they pick. And, and it will be interesting, you know, in the course of the campaign, do I end up regretting this? Do I end up feeling that the uh, PCs are too powerful because they all have an extra feat. But, you know, another part of my thinking here is, you know, just looking at Death House, it's like, okay, this adventure is really deadly. Um, it's not properly balanced. And assuming that the entire campaign is going to be like that, you know, giving the PCs a little bit of a leg up by giving them an extra feat, you know, probably be a good thing. Probably will will help out with that a little bit. And it's a lot easier for me to just give everybody an extra feat than it is to, to go through and try to retool every encounter so that we can actually finish this campaign without having to like, everyone's gone through six different characters by the time we get to the end and nobody's playing an original character anymore. That'd be pretty stupid. Well, maybe not stupid, but that's, that's not the kind of game I want to run. And I, I want to have some, some narrative continuity of character through the game and, and character development, which you can't have when characters are dying every session. And especially since, you know, resurrection and raising dead and whatnot can, can be uh, interesting, shall we say in Ravenloft, you can't necessarily rely on that all the time either. So yeah, and that's something I, I'd love to hear from you if you've done this in character creation, because this isn't a new idea. I, I don't remember who gave me this idea, but I've, I've heard other DMs talk about doing this where you don't allow human variant and you just give everybody a feed at first level. Um, if you've done that, how did, how did it work out? How do you feel it impacted the power level of the party? Um, did you find throughout the game that you had to make encounters more challenging to compensate for that? Or did it not really make much of a difference? Did it make the characters more interesting at level one? Because that's kind of the idea, right? It's like, otherwise every level one fighter is kind of the same. Right. But, but giving them a feat at level one, you know, now your fighter can be a special snowflake because you can do this thing that not every fighter out there can do. So I'm curious if anyone's had experience, how it, how it worked out for you, especially like, you know, low level, mid level, high level, because I could see maybe at low level, it, it might be a substantial power boost. Um, but by high level, it probably having one extra feat isn't that big of a deal. And I'm also curious if you did that, you know, what was your experience as far as the feats that players took? Did did players overall tend to use that to optimize their characters or were they taking more kind of flavorful stuff or was it was it a pretty even mix? So other than that, I'm, I'm pretty much running it by the book. The only other thing is, is I am using my plot twist idea, which which I've talked about on the show and my kind of variant way that I do inspiration but uh, other than that pretty much running it by the book other than of course any uh, second edition Ravenloft specific mechanics I need to pour over because wizards didn't so 
Yeah. So are you running Ravenloft too? Are you running Curse of Strahd? Uh, let me know. I'm excited. I can't wait to, to run it. We're starting uh, Death House this week, this coming Thursday. So come check us out on YouTube. All right, well, that's going to wrap up episode 97 of Game Master's Journey. If you'd like to reach me, shoot me an email at gamemastersjourney at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Lex Starwalker. Follow me on Google Plus plus Lex Starwalker. And head on over to my website, starwalkerstudios.com, and you can find the show notes for this episode. I'll have the links that I mentioned there, so you can just go right where you need to go, and you don't have to hunt around on Wizards' website trying to find stuff. I want to give a huge shout out and thank you to my tier six patron, Mr. Steve Strickland. Let's hear it for Steve. Woo! Hey, you made. So yeah, I, I made a mistake last episode. I referenced Steve as my tier five patron, which is what he used to be. But Steve is tiered up to tier six because I added a new tier below tier five. So so the old tier five is the new tier six. So. Um, Steve is rocking tier six patron, which means I get to thank him on every episode of every podcast, which is pretty cool. So thank you, Steve. Thank you to all the patrons. Really appreciate it. And again, if, if you're a patron, please go over to the Patreon feed and check that out. Um, I posted some stuff there and let me know uh, when it comes to the game material, which of those things you want to see first. And if you're not a patron, go go check out the patron page and see uh, see what you're missing. I'd love more patrons. <laughs> Our next milestone goal, I get to do actual play of uh, whatever I'm running on the show, uh, which right now would be Curse of Strahd, which I would love to do Curse of Strahd actual play on Game Master's Journey. I think that'd be really fun. I've got a really great group lined up. Everybody's people I've played with before so there's no wild cards. I, I, I know what's coming and it's going to be fun and entertaining. So, uh, yeah, something to look forward to. So I hope you have a chance to play your favorite RPG this week. I'll be back soon with another episode of Game Master's Journey. Until then, game on. This has been a Starwalker Studios production, your source for quality gaming and hobby podcasts. This episode's music provided by Cloudwalker, Renfield, Transboy, and Ish. Please see the show notes for more details at starwalkerstudios.com slash Game Master's Journey.